you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 284 of the Pack-A-Day podcast. My name is Andy Herman. Of course, I am a writer for Cheesehead TV, and you can always follow me on Twitter at Scani Sports. Today, my guest is the lead college football writer and draft analyst for RotoWorld.com. He's done a ton of work on the NFL draft, currently has grades out for each NFL team, and even has graded every team's undrafted free agent class. He was the Fantasy Sports Writers Association College Sports Writer of the Year. You can follow him on Twitter at Thorku. My guest is the one and only Thor Nystrom. Thor, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the Pack-A-Day podcast. Andy, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in. Again, your college uh, football work and your draft analyst work was absolutely phenomenal and certainly something that I leaned on during the draft process as a whole. So I'm really excited to kind of hear your takes on the overall draft as well as the Packers draft specifically. But before we jump into all that fun stuff, just kind of can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got writing for Rotor World and, and the NFL draft as a whole? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I uh well, man, I'm going to date myself here, but I got hired about a decade ago and I did coming out of out of undergrad, out of KU, I, I got an internship with MLB.com for one season to cover the Minnesota Twins and coming out of that, Roto World hired me as a part-time baseball writer. And so I was that for five years. Even I, I, I got into grad school. I did it through then. I taught in China for one year. I did it through then. And then when I came back about five years ago, they switched me to college football in the NFL draft and those have always been my first loves. Those are my two things is college football and the NFL draft. So that that's been really great. Um, and we've just, you know, gone at it since then. So it's been really fun. That's awesome. And like I said, your, your work was definitely phenomenal. This is the first draft process. I think this is your first draft process where you've been on Twitter, at least of uh, you've gained a kind of an exponential following over the course of the last few months, I know. But uh, this is my first time really following through. And like I said, you did a tremendous job with everything. Th- thanks so much. Yeah. And yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride. I think, uh, well, I, I didn't even really start using Twitter regularly until two years ago. And coming into this season, I, I think I was just around like 4K and uh, yeah, it's it it's really taken off in a, a strange way. It's I I didn't expect it for sure, and and deservedly so. So want to jump into the NFL draft, of course. I, I before we even jump into the Packers, I want to kind of get your winners and losers and some surprises. Let's first of all take a look at some of your big winners throughout the draft, whether it be a team or a player, maybe a scheme fit, just something that really stood out to you. Yeah, you know my the, in my opinion the best class is you know I, I I did my my grades and everything for Roto World. I thought the best class is the Redskins class. I absolutely loved. I mean, there we do all these mock draft exercises, you know, in in the in the month leading up to the draft. I, I went out to Stanford, Connecticut, did one with Chris Sims and Josh Norris, a live one. I did another live one on the Pat Mayo podcast uh, with with my buddy Davis, uh, and then of course I did a bunch individually. And guys like Haskins were very rarely available at, you know, the middle of the first round where the Redskins picked and then sweat falling to the very end. You, you rarely saw that as well. And, and then I just thought they crushed all their picks after that, too. I thought they had some really inspired gambles and stuff like that. I thought the Titans did a really good job as well. I, I love the Jeffrey Simmons pick. I, I like what the Chargers did staying in their slots. I, I thought they they nailed every pick they had. The, the Jets you know got kind of lucky there in the first round getting you know Quinn and whatever at three best guy in the draft for me anyway. So those were the teams that I thought were were sort of best in show this year. 
Yeah, I'm curious the thoughts on a couple other ones. There were two that I really liked as well and just kind of want to get your thoughts on them. The first was the Eagles, and it wasn't anything super sexy, but having Andre Dillard fall to them in the 20s, and then so he can now learn uh, for a year behind Jason Peters, I think is a perfect fit. And then just getting two very Philadelphia Eagles-type players that are going to fit that offense well in Miles Sanders and J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, it just felt like a very Philadelphia Eagles draft to me. And then the other one was really the Buffalo Bills, and this was really predicated more on those top two picks uh, at Oliver in the first Cody Ford in the second. I was, I think a lot of Packer fans, myself included, were hoping that Ed Oliver was going to fall to 12 and that Green Bay would be able to take him there. That obviously was not the case, but just absolutely love his upside. Think he's going to bring a lot to the interior of their defense immediately. And then Cody Ford, uh, you know, getting a guy who I think can probably start day one. Uh, this is all about uh, obviously helping Josh Allen and, and make him, making him a successful quarterback, giving him a stronger running game. I think Cody Ford's going to help with both of those things. Then even picking up a Dawson Knox in the third round, which again, I think is going to help Josh Allen. Those those were two teams that kind of stood out to me a little bit as well. Yeah, the Eagles, you know, I, I just tossed out four teams that I gave an A-plus or an A to. The Eagles were just behind there. I, I gave them an A-minus. Agree with everything you said. I, I thought it was perfect, especially in the first round. I mean, what what an inspired move up the board when this guy, Dillard, is free-falling. And, you know, the, the circumstances sort of went against Dillard and also some of the NFL's picadillos with, with offensive tackle evaluations went against Dillard. You know, during the process, I had this thing. It was it was half joke, but it was half truth, where I kept calling Dillard the Pat Mahomes of, of left tackle prospects because he got nitpicked for a lot. You know, I mean, it's it's the offensive tackle version of it, but he got nitpicked for a lot of the same things that Mahomes did, you know, coming in. A lot of things that had absolutely nothing to do with his skill set, and it was just sort of like a lazy evaluator thing of like, oh, well, we never saw him, you know, run block in, you know, in, in, you know, in typical fashion or whatever. It was all, you know, there was these, these big splits and – you know, it was, it was just a bunch of, you know, draws when the, the you know, the, the defense was expecting pass. And it's like, OK, the guy had like 400 more live, you know, reps at left tackle than any other prospect in this class. He had 97th percentile athleticism um, last year was just utterly dominant. And, you know, the, the the board just went against him. And like I said, some of the NFL's biases went against him. And then, you know, he starts falling down the board a bit. I thought the Vikings were in play to take him. They ended up going with Bradbury because they want to get Elfline. They want to kick him to guard, um, which, you know, I, you can't quibble with that too much. But that allowed Dillard to get get down there. And I had been told before the draft that the Texans were going to consider trading up for Dillard. And so when Dillard falls to 22, one spot ahead of the Texans, I'm, you know, I, I, my buddy, my, my coworker, he came to Minneapolis to watch the draft with me. And I turned to him and I said, I, I bet you the Texans trade up one spot uh, to take Dillard. And then the, you know, sure enough, that little scroll on the bottom comes up, you know, trade. And I, I, I tell my buddy, told you, and it comes up that the Eagles had hopped, hopped the Texans, and they did so for such a nominal fee, such, you know, such a small price. I, I thought that was really poorly played by the Texans. I, I, I think they would have been able, uh, you know, to 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 beat the Eagles' offer with a fifth and a sixth, because you know, because then it just would have been a one spot down. Um, I, I think the Eagles ended up giving up a fourth and a sixth to get above them, and then of course the. Uh, you know, the, the Texas had to, had to audible to the FCS project, Titus Howard. Uh, but yeah, I love, I love the Dillard pick. Miles Sanders, I think was a really inspired kind of a pick there in, in, in round two. He's a guy, if you look at his analytics and you look at his testing profile, the, the, the closeness in comparison between him and Clinton Portis will kind of knock your socks off. Clinton Portis, Cadillac Williams is another guy. I, I thought if it, you know, of, of competent to lower end on the spectrum, it'd be Felix Jones, but you know, he, he, he's a kid that showed a lot last year. And I think, uh, you know, he sort of suffered, you know, in the evaluation process in a different way than Dillard, but he, you know, he sort of suffered from those, uh, those natural comparisons to Saquon Barkley, which aren't fair. You can't, you can't compare anyone to, you know, one of the best prospects we've seen at the position in the last decade. Uh, agree what you said about JJ Arcega Whiteside. I comped him to, uh, to a local kid, actually, Eric Decker. I really like that pick as well. And then Sharif Miller and Clayton Thorson, man, in, 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 in day three there, all these teams, you know, you, you see so many of these, these, these just pure dart throws of guys that have very, very little chance of sticking in the NFL. Um, I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised if Sharif Miller and, and Clayton Thorson wash out quickly. So I, I, I like those picks too that, you know, they might be career backups, but they're going to be solid players, if nothing else. And then going to the Bills, I ended up giving them a B. 
um, for for the draft. But I I agree with your analysis of it. The the first pick at nine with Oliver was an absolute bonanza. Uh, the Bills entire organization should be sending fruit baskets, you know, south, you know, down south there to Mr. Gettleman for taking Daniel Jones at six, because that allowed Ed Oliver to get to nine. That allowed, I mean, Jacksonville should be sending fruit baskets up as well. You know, that allowed Josh Allen to get to, to get to seven. Um, So, I mean, great pick there. Cody Ford at 38. That's another slam dunk. You know, that's, that's a kid we were talking about as early as the Vikings pick. And I'd heard the Vikings really liked him. You know, I think if the board had gone, a bit different where, you know, say, say Bradbury and Dillard, you know, get, get taken above the Vikings. You may have seen Cody Ford hear his name called there. So for him to fall to 38, that's a slam dunk pick. And I love Devin Motor Singletary, the, the running back they got in round three. Absolutely love him. I, I comp him to Devontae Freeman. He's, he was my third running back in this class. I, I think he's really good. In fact, I ranked him above Miles Sanders. I think he's going to surprise. Um, the rest of the class, I wasn't as high on, although, you know, Dawson Knox, I, I don't mind that pick just because, you know, once you get to that point, you know, they, they took him with the 96th overall pick, the tight end class, it sort of started to dry up at that point, you know, and, and so at that point you have to take the guy with the highest ceiling. And at that time it, it was Dawson Knox. So I, I can't argue with that too much. The, the rest of their picks though, I was kind of mad on, but uh, yeah, the, the, the beginning of their draft, you know, day one and day two was, was really good. Agreed. And, and going back to Titus Howard and Andre Dillard for a moment, uh, you know, poor, poor Texans, like you said, they, they definitely should have managed that a little bit better, but you're going to be hard pressed to find uh, a bigger gap, in my opinion, between two players at the same position picked back to back in the first round than what Titus Howard and Andre Dillard are. Uh, and I like uh, Titus Howard, but I'm just really a huge fan of Andre Dillard. Kind of reminds me, although they were kind of flip-flopped uh, of the Eddie Kennison, Marvin Harrison, you know, back to back picks back with the Rams and Colts way back in the day. But uh, again, just kind of a big gap there. And like you said, I think the, the Texans probably should have managed that just a little bit better. Um, on the, uh, you know, kind of going on the opposite side, what were a couple teams that, that really stood out to you as, as kind of bombing this draft or just not having the draft that they probably should have? Yeah, sure. And and to your your previous point, what it reminded me of was from last year when the Bengals wanted Frank Ragnow and, you know, the Lions end up taking him right above him and the Bengals are like, crap. We Ragnar was supposed to be here. What do we do, guys? You know, they're looking around, looking around, and it's like, well, uh, we could do best player available, but we really want that center. Let's just take Billy Price. You know, they just sort of threw threw their hands up. So yeah, it, really unfortunate, and the, the Texans could have avoided that so easily. But yeah, as, as far as teams that I did not like their drafts, I uh, I gave <laughs> I gave out by myself. I gave out two more Fs than the rest of the industry combined. You know, I, I saw. <laughs> I saw, I saw the, the, you know, the NFL draft uh, grade aggregation by this guy in Germany does. He does a beautiful job. This uh, shout out to Renee Bugner, Bugner uh, or whatever. But uh, yeah, he, he put that out there and I found it hilarious. You know, I'm, I'm all the way on the right of the GPA because they aggregate the GPAs. Um, I'm way at the bottom there. But, um, you know, what I try to do is grade on a curve. So I'm trying to get my GPA smack dab to, to 2.50 basically. Um, this year I failed. It was at 2.51, but I, I, I did my best. But the, the two Fs I gave out were the, to the Raiders and the Cowboys. I thought they had, frankly, embarrassing drafts. The Dolphins I gave a D minus two, but I want to tell folks something. I don't factor trades in, in into my grades at all because it it just becomes like this sort of Doctor Strange sort of alternate reality. You know, it goes this way, this way. You got to track it too far back. So I don't bake those things in. I, I think it gets too wonky when you do. So I love, for instance, you know, the, the Josh Rosen trade for one. The, the Dolphins made a couple of good trades over the weekend, but that was not factored in. I'm, I'm mostly my, – my grades are mostly based on – the players taken in the slots they were taken, you know, and, and stuff like that. So I, I didn't like what the Dolphins did from that perspective. So I gave them a D minus. And then two other teams I, I didn't like. The Giants, I gave them a D. Everyone knows why. And then another class that I happened to be lower on than some other folks was the Colts. So they were my other D. Interesting. Yeah, the two the two that stood out to me, and you mentioned both of them, were the Giants and the Raiders. And I think the biggest reason that is, is both of them had three first round picks. And this has the opportunity to be a franchise altering draft one way or the other for both of those franchises. And, you know, for the Giants, uh, I really like Dexter Lawrence. I really, really do. Uh, but mid first round for a, a guy that, you know, he's definitely going to pressure the pocket a little bit too, but is going to be primarily dominant in the running game. DeAndre Baker, a solid corner in a poor cornerback class. And then of 
course, their entire draft is going to rest on whether or not Daniel Jones succeeds or not. And, and to me, that's very, very rich for Daniel Jones, to say the least. And then for the Raiders, again, Cleveland Farrell, solid player, good kid, uh, but, uh, you know, probably a, a mid teens, you know, mid twenties, even guy uh, taking him in the top five was questionable. And then again, two, two players that are, while I like both of them, just, you know, positional value running back and box safety and the giants you are picking early, middle and late first, the Raiders early, and then kind of two later first, but still uh, you've got to hit really, really hot when you have those type of picks. And I was just underwhelmed by both. I was too. Yeah. We'll, we'll start with the giants. The you know, and, you know, like you said, Dexter Lawrence, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I had him 27, you know, it's a little bit of an overdraft, but oh, okay. You yeah. know, DeAndre Baker, I had a 38, you know, he went 30, you know, a little bit of an over, but it's like, eh, but the, the Daniel Jones thing, that really hurts. And it's not because necessarily because of Daniel Jones, the player. In fact, I like Daniel Jones more than just about anyone in the media. You know, most people in the media absolutely hated Daniel Jones. I did have a first round grade on him. I ranked him 32 overall. Um, but, you know, even as one of the guys that was sort of, you know, carrying the flag for Daniel Jones, you still can't like this pick. It was a terrible pick. You can't pick Daniel Jones at one six. You know, like no one behind you was going to take him. You know, the the, the Redskins were probably the first shot, you know, the, the first spot that he could have gone at at 15. The Redskins didn't want Daniel Jones, though. They wanted the local kid, Haskins, who's a better player anyway. And so, you know, to take to take Jones at six, where you're eschewing guys like Josh Allen, who who I ranked as the number two player of the class, Ed Oliver, who I ranked as the number three, you know, player of the class, or whatever. You're you're turning your back on those guys so you can overdraft this quarterback that there was a decent shot that you could have gotten them at 17. And if not, okay, let's, let's say the Gettleman, because this, apparently this is what it was, was that he was absolutely terrified that the, you know, that the Dolphins and the Redskins were, were, you know, one of the two was, was, was going to take Daniel Jones. Well, first of all, he, his little birdies, you know, it should have been like, uh, you know, Game of Thrones with the ball guy where he's, he's got, his, you know, and, and little finger, they got their people all over the place. You, you got to know that the Dolphins are talking to the Cardinals about Rosen. I mean, that's, you you are misplaying your hand if you think the Dolphins are taking a quarterback in the first round. You know, nobody in the media thought that the Dolphins were going to take a quarterback in the first round. That was not in play. And then as far as the Redskins thing, if Haskins is there, you have to know that they're not going to take him. Now, you didn't know in advance that that Haskins was going to be there. Of course, you helped facilitate it, but you, you don't necessarily know. Well, why not then just trade to 14 or whatever, 13? Or, you know, why don't you, you know, why don't you take Josh Allen or Ed Oliver and then, you know, if, 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 you know, you're already sitting at 17, the Dexter Lawrence pick or whatever, why not hop up three spots if you're, if, if you're so terrified? And my other thing with that was even the people who really like Daniel Jones, such as myself, you know, again, I, I, I liked him. I, I think there was, there were certain parts of his evaluation that people were not uh, taking into consideration, you know, and you know what? Let me go on a, a tangent here just for a second in support of, of Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones, he's a big kid, 6'5", 221, very athletic, 78th percentile athleticism. He's a kid who I think as a runner is going to give you a Josh Allen. Now I'm talking about the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen, not, not, not the edge rusher, Josh Allen, but the, the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen. I think you can get a similar dimension on the ground that, that Josh, Allen, Josh Allen gave the Bills last year. We've already seen how valuable that is. Okay, so you have that. Uh, number two, Daniel Jones was one of the better quarterbacks in college football in the short area last year. So you have that. And, and also, he's very good in the intermediate area. The reason that everyone was very, very low on Daniel Jones is because he basically didn't complete downfield throws in, in college, you know, spe- specifically last year. But what I would tell folks is, number one, he, Daniel Jones had a terrible offensive line. Number two, he had absolutely no receivers. P- people gave Drew Locke the, oh, he has no supporting casting. They said that throughout the process. And the whole time I was being like, what are you guys talking about? Drew Drew Locke played with, with three NFL receivers. He played with the guy who's going to be the first tight end off the board next year, this this Albert O kid. He had Josh Heupel as, as an offensive coordinator for one of the, these years, et cetera. Daniel Jones is the kid who had no supporting cast. Furthermore, Daniel Jones broke his collarbone in September of this last year. I thought he was going to be out for most of the season. He miraculously returns two or three weeks later, and you know he was compromised. He's compromised behind this really bad offensive line or whatever. And so David Cutcliffe, you know, he he skewed even more towards this sort of like offense where it was like you know there was a lot of empty sets out of the shotgun, and it was a lot of quick hitters. They just wanted the ball out of there quick because David Cutcliffe, he you know you know 
he doesn't want it on his conscience that that he's got you know Daniel Jones sitting sitting back there behind this sieve of an offensive line. You know, is like you know these these ACC teams like you know Clemson or you know Florida State with Brian Burns off the edge. Like all these different teams are just you know shellacking Daniel Jones back there because you're trying to throw the ball you know sixty yards downfield to show NFL evaluators that you can. So. I think there was contextual reasons to explain why he did not have more 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 deep throws, and I think those contextual reasons also could help explain why in the NFL that aspect of his game could get better. Because obviously, if he can't complete if he can't complete downfield balls in the NFL, he's gonna he's gonna bust real hard. Um, so you know, I, I I wanted to make those points, but again, just in terms of draft capital, you cannot take him at six. That is malfeasance. You know, it's it, you 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 just can't do it from a from a value perspective. Either trade down. Or you know, or you know, take your guy or whatever. Hope he gets there to seventeen. I think there was a, a really good chance that he did. And also realize, even though you really like Daniel Jones, you know, Gettleman's been getting crap these past couple of years because you know he's he fetishizes the trenches. And last year, he, you know, he wanted to take Saquon over over the quarterbacks. This really good quarterback class, all this different stuff. And I think he sort of got a hero complex, you know, during this. Uh, you know, this past year, basically this this past calendar year, because he got battered because of the Saquon thing. And I think, you know, his whole thing was like, we're going to have these, you know, we're, well, we have the one first round pick. And then, you know, they traded with the, they got the other one at the Odell one. And I think he was like, I'm going to show you guys. I, I do like quarterbacks. I really do. And in fact, there's one guy that I fell in love with at the senior bowl, you know, after, after sitting down across from Daniel Jones and, you know, watching him take one snap, I, I fell in love. So I'm going to show you guys what kind of conviction I had what you know that that I have or whatever but listen man he's not a unicorn prospect and you already have a 2019 starter so what I, I have a better idea. Why don't you just take the better player? Take take Oliver or Josh Allen there. See if he gets to seventeen. If he does, great, awesome. You take Daniel Jones there. If not, who cares? You know, Eli Manning's already starting for you this year. You're going to stink this coming year. You're going to be at you know the high end of next year's draft as well. That quarterback class is much better. You know, headlined by of course Tua and Justin Herbert. So I, I I thought that was really poorly done. And then as far as the Raiders, I I thought that was even more of a joke of of a draft. To be honest with you. You take a guy, and you know Farrell. I I ranked him 19, which was above what some other guys did. They took him at four. So I mean, best case scenario, you're talking about a guy who was a mid first round uh, type talent who who was taken off the board at four over all these mega studs. I mean, th- this was just a crazy front seven class. And Farrell, I thought he was a little bit underrated because he did get sort of washed under some of these these other guys, you know, your your Josh Allen's, your Ed Oliver, stuff like and to say nothing of the guys at the top, Quinnen and and Bosa and whatnot. But I I do not understand how you take him at four. It's it's both a misread of everybody else at the poker table, number one, because no one else is going to take him that high. So you, you know, you could have traded down, accrued some more picks, maybe picked up a another pick next year, whatever, because they, you know, they they have a war chest of picks. And next year they're gonna have two first rounders as well. Um, do that or uh well, you should have done that if 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 Farrell was your guy. It's just it, you know, not good. And then 24. They take Josh Jacobs. Everybody in the media knew they were going to take Josh Jacobs at 24 for the last two months. It was such a ubiquitous rumor that I refused to, to, to mock Josh Jacobs to the Raiders at 24 because my stance was Mike, Mike Mayock is too smart to let something like that get out. He's, he, he's a very intelligent guy. The only reason that everyone in the media knows he's taking Josh Jacobs at, at 24 is because he's the smartest guy in the room. Like he's putting out a smoke screen. So, you know, he's, he's trying to get somebody else to, to take, you know, Jacobs in the top, you know, 20 or whatever, because he wants someone else to fall down the board. No, no, he, he actually wanted Josh Jacobs at 24. Just everybody knew it, including the NFL. And, and the NFL was like, uh, go ahead, Mayock. We're, you know, we're, we're all good. No, none of us are going to take him in the top 23. I don't know if another team would have taken him, Josh Jacobs in the first round. Josh Jacobs was my RB2. I rated him 53 overall. Um, and he's a passing down back. He's, he's a guy who's never been a featured back throughout his time at Alabama. He never started. Um, you know, they, they use him as a, a complimentary back to the Harrises, you know, Damien, who we saw go to the Patriots in this class. And then Najee, who is the number one recruit, uh, two classes ago. So, I mean, Jacob's a very good passing down back. Don't get me wrong. Extremely, you know, natural as a receiver, all that kind of stuff. Um, and he's a good pass blocker too. You know, kids very physically tries to decapitate, you know, people, you know, linebackers blitz and stuff like that. But he's the kind of guy, if, if you really, really like Josh Jacobs, you take him at the top end of the second round. 
you know, you, you early on Friday, whatever, you, you don't take them there. Um, so I, I thought that that was poorly done. And then three picks later, Jonathan Abram, I, wh- what are you doing? I mean, like there were safeties on day three, multiple ones that I liked more than Jonathan Abram in the, in, in the modern NFL. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like the Raiders were drafting from like 20 years ago or, or something like that. And what's so odd about it is because Mayock was in the draft media for so long. Like we knew what more or less what his process was. And it's almost like, you know, it wasn't, you know, Mike Mayock doing this draft. It was almost like it was like John Madden or something. And he's like, oh, we got to get the the slobber knocker. We got to get the hitman from Mississippi State Abram. You know, I've seen that kid, you know, knock people around like all this different stuff. He's going to set the tone and whatnot. But it's like he's a box safety who tested in the 36th percentile and he's terrible in coverage. We know this because we have his PFF page. Um, you know, they Mississippi State tried to play him in a slot a lot. They they gave the, the kid a shot. In fact, I think uh, something like 40% of his snaps last year came from in the slot. It's just he wasn't good at it. And we had numerous, again, we had numerous safeties in this class who were very athletic and were also good in coverage who went on day three. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson was one. Amani Hooker was another. Uh, Deontay Thompson. I I, th- I think all those th- those three guys all went on, on day three. I would have preferred all three of those players in the modern NFL. You know, again, you know, if, if we're talking 25 years ago, the game is played a bit different. You know, then maybe maybe John Abram at that time would be, you know, a top 40 type prospect. But in the modern NFL, I, I just don't understand the, the valuation there. And I also don't understand the upside on any of these picks. The reason that Farrell was even 19, it wasn't because he has a high ceiling. It's because his floor was ludicrously high. And so, you know, my stance on Farrell is he basically has no chance of becoming one of like he just doesn't have the ceiling or the athleticism to become. You look back 20 years from now, a top three player in this class. So what are you doing picking them at four? And then, you know, a a running back who is potentially, you know, just going to be a a big plus and on passing downs. But you probably need another guy there with him to do the the early down grinding kind of work, especially because also Jacobs, you know, has been nicked up a lot in in college. his, His touches should be limited a bit. I don't see the upside of that. I don't see how he becomes one of the 25 most valuable players from this class. And the same thing with John Abram, you know, a, a box safety like that that struggles in coverage. For either Jacobs or Abram to justify their slots, they're going to have to become one of the, you know, one, two, three best players at their respective positions because of, you know, the the devaluation of those positions. And they're going to have to do it with Josh Jacobs having 18th percentile athleticism and Jonathan Abram having 36th percentile athleticism. Um, I don't, I don't like their odds of that. I also didn't, I, I didn't like the Raiders second round pick either of, of Trayvon Mullet. He's a kid who had less than 50th percentile athleticism too. I mean, like they, they, they were taking all these, these prospects with premium picks that, that don't move very well when the NFL is becoming this speed and space game. Like the NBA is, I, I don't get it. I, I, I threw my hands up and I thought Mike Mayock was a genius coming into this thing. I was really excited to see what they would do. And uh, I was thoroughly underwhelmed throughout. No, I totally agree. Certainly two very, very questionable draft classes that will be fun to keep an eye on going forward, see if maybe they knew more than we knew. But at the uh, at the onset, it certainly doesn't exactly seem that way. So let's fast forward ahead to the Packers draft. Um, obviously, they had eight selections throughout. You graded them overall as a C-. minus. Let's start out with their two first-round picks. Of course, they take Rayshon Gary 12th overall, and then they move up. Uh, up to 21 overall to take Darnell Savage, the safety out of Maryland. Uh, what were your initial impressions from those two draft picks? Yeah, and I want to say first, before Packer fans start turning off the podcast right now, because I gave you guys a C minus, a C minus in my grade. This is not a C minus like in, uh, well, I'm not going to start tossing out names and die bombing people here. But in mo- when most people do grades, a C minus is would be the worst grade that they gave out. Not the case with me. That That is just a sl- literally a slightly below average class in my estimation. You know, if I ranked them out, that probably would have been like 18, 19 kind of range. So I, I didn't hate the Packer draft. The reason, though, that they, they got a C minus, you know, in my sort of ideology was because I did not like what they did on day one. I, I really like what the in fact, I, I loved what the Packers did on day two. I, I thought the Packers had one of the best day twos in all of the NFL because I, I really, really like Jenkins and Sternberger. I, I think that is an absolute steal. Jay Sternberger is going to be a stud, I guarantee you. Um, and so I, I love what they did there. The the flyer on Dexter. But well, anyway, we'll get into that. OK, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll <laughs> we'll, we'll go back to day one. So the reason that I, I didn't like the Gary pick a multitude of reasons, Um, you know, he's a kid who he, he just never lived up to his billing in Michigan. And it wasn't just that. 
you didn't see a ton of development out of Rashawn Gary at, at, at Michigan. You know, he was a kid coming in 2016. He was the number, number one overall recruit in, in the country, you know, which I think a lot of Green Bay fans by this point probably know he, he could have gone anywhere. I, I still remember his signing day, you know, I was covering it for Roto World and he sits down at the table and, the, the two spots for him, it was either going to be Clemson or Michigan, you know, and those, so, so he had those two hats up there and I was really hoping he was going to go to Clemson. And in hindsight, it would have been hilarious if you added Rashawn Garrett, you know, to Christian Wilkins, Dexter Lawrence, Austin Bryan, Clellan Farrell, heck, even their backup uh, defensive tackle, uh, uh, Huggins, uh, the Huggy Bear. He, he was a guy who was, you know, one of the top UDFA interior linemen in this class. So, you know, Gary could have gone there, but he ends up at Michigan and, he, you know, he's a freak athlete, destroyed the combine, obviously 96 percentile spark athleticism, four, five, eight speed at six, four, two seventy seven. All that stuff, you know, crazy, 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 you know, great and stuff like that. Uh, but again, on the field right now, for me, he's he's a tweener. You know, he's he's a guy that you play on the edge there, but he he plays far more like a, a three technique or like a like an interior guy. He he wants to use power. He he, he tries to grapple with folks and whatnot. The joke I made in my uh in, in, in my write-up of Rashawn Gary, is that he sort of plays as though he's the edge-rushing version of Greg Gaines from, from Washington. And for people that don't know who Greg Gaines is, Greg Gaines is he's this this interior lineman from Washington who's, who's this under-talented, sort of country-strong, just fighter guy. You know, he's, he, he's just in there trying to, you know, uh, you know, muck things up or whatever and bull rush and stuff like that. That was Rashawn Gary. At, 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 at Michigan, this is a kid with, with world-class freak athleticism uh, coming off the edge. He should have been trying to beat, you know, I mean, like Wisconsin, they, they have those sort of, you know, big, you know, monolithic statuesque type tackles and stuff like that. Try to beat him with your speed and twitch, kid. Like, what, what are you doing trying to go fire on fire at 277 with, with you know, with, with some of these, like, farm boys, you know, and stuff like that? So, yeah, he there's a sort of lack of awareness there, both about the, the ways in which he should play and, you know, and, and, and as far as his development, and then also just sort of in, in, in the, 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 the other sort of micro things on the field, you know, in terms of like play recognition and stuff like that. Like he got fooled a lot at Michigan by like, you know, things like misdirection and play action and, and stuff like that. And this deserves to be said. I, th- th- this might seem a little bit cruel, but it- it's just the truth. He tested a nine on the Wonderlick. I know that some people, you know, say Wonderlick is unfair. We shouldn't mention it or whatever, but I bake everything into my evaluations. And that's something that I saw in the field. You know, just, just like I said, just would just get confused. He, he did not seem like he had a plan very often. Um, so all that kind of stuff, it, it, it's sort of unnerving to me. He's going to have to, he's either going to have to bulk up to play to to move him inside, I I think that is is probably would behoove the way that Rashawn Gary wants to play more. But I don't know how much bigger you can get him. And then if you if you keep him on the edge, well then you have to teach him a whole bunch of moves, right? Like you have to you have to get him playing. You, have, you also have to get him playing team football because sometimes he gets this sort of solo complex. So th- there was a lot of questions there. I thought that there was better uh, edge rushers on the board. And I also thought there was guys with higher ceilings on the board. For instance, Brian Burns. I, I don't really understand if you're going to take an edge guy, why you take Gary over over Brian Burns. Even if Gary hits his absolute ceiling, he's never going to do anything as good as Brian Burns is at rushing the passer. So, you know, I... I, I I had questions about that, and I hear you know the the I, I've heard some some chatter. Maybe you can uh, you know uh, fill me in a little bit more on this. But I, I heard the Packers their their plan for Gary was to have him on the edge on early downs, and then maybe try to kick him inside on passing downs. Is that sort of the plan? Yeah, they're definitely going to start him off as edge rusher. They announced him as an outside linebacker, basically. And he's going to be one of those versatile chess pieces. I think they're going to use him very similarly to how they used Darius Smith coming in from the Ravens. Uh, like you said, they're going to start him off edge. I think they're both going to rotate in a little bit on the middle. I, I think the thing that's grown on me a little bit about this pick, because a lot of the question marks that you just mentioned uh, resonated very much with me when the in- initial pick was announced. And that was a lot of that stuff was in my you know initial evaluation as well. 
the one thing that's grown on me a little bit, well, there's, there's two big ones. Uh, the first is that, you know, from what Mike Patton wants to do in his front four specifically, but even his front seven as a whole, he wants to kind of bring waves of these players who can collapse pockets and have a mix of size speed that he's going to run a ton of stunts or a ton of games. Uh, he's going to do a lot of that. And I think some of that did show up with Rayshon Gary. And uh, again, like you said, that, that elite athleticism, I think is going to show on those. The, the thing I, I would counterpoint is to say, you know, listen, if you're going to scheme these open rushers, you probably don't have to spend a top 12 pick on it, but uh, he does definitely fall within the realm of what they definitely look for. And, and he's going to play all across the defensive line. And uh, like, like I said, a lot like Zadarius Smith will. So the other thing that really grew on me was the fact that they brought in Mike Smith, uh, the outside linebackers coach from Kansas City. And, uh, you know, he really did a phenomenal job, not only with D Ford and Justin Houston, but with Chris Jones, as well as the interior on the interior. And there was obviously some questions about Chris Jones coming as well. And all three of those players have gone out of their way to say that they really, you know, credited him uh, to, to build a way to the quarterback, to, to put a plan together, not only you know, for the season, but game in and game out uh, that they specifically put a game plan together on how to attack the players that were going to be playing across from them. And uh, again, all three of those players could not speak highly enough about him. So that's something that I'm certainly looking forward to to seeing if, if Gary can take that tutelage and, and use that elite athleticism and those elite traits on the field. And, and like I said, I definitely think he's going to fit in the scheme very well. Sure. Yeah. And listen, if, if he hits a ceiling, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's absolutely worth, you know, the, the, the 12 pick. I, I just, you know, again, I, I just question it. Cause I just, I never saw it in college and I, I saw some things in scouting reports of like, Oh, you know, if gets to the NFL, gets NFL coaching, you know, maybe then the light will turn on stuff like this. He he's already been with an NFL coaching staff for three years. He, he was with Jim Harbaugh uh, and the defensive coordinator at Michigan's one of the best in the business, Don Brown. And, you know, Rashawn Gary, you look at his PFF page, you know, PFF grades every single play, you know, or whatever, like even, you know, if, if a player doesn't accrue a stat on a play, but he gets a win, you know, that that all is noted in there. Rashawn Gary's career high grade at Michigan was 80.4. That was last year. Uh, Chase Winovich, for example, the the Patriots uh, third rounder who also played at Michigan, of course, he bested that all three of, of his seasons. And it wasn't just that, like guys like uh, TJ Edwards uh, bested at three, three different seasons. Obviously guys, you know, like Clellan Farrell and a lot of these other guys in the, the, you know, the edge class, whatever they, they bested that, you know, almost every single season that, that they were there. So I, I, I do have, you know, questions about that, but obviously with Rashawn Gary, you are talking about an elite athlete who is a speed to power guy and likes to bull rush. If you can find a way to get nuance into his game, I don't know if it's possible, but if it is possible, that's when he becomes scary because you know, the, you know, the, anyone he's going up against the NFL, they're going to know what Rashawn Gary's scouting report is. It's like, okay, it's this, this super athletic kid that for whatever reason doesn't like to weaponize his athleticism. He, he wants to go more, you know, north, south and, and, and try to beat you with, you know, power and stuff like that. Um, they're going to be able to, in, in my opinion, I, I think that they're going to be able to, uh, you know, take that away because it's like a, you're facing like a reliever in baseball that only sort of has, you know, two pitches. One of them is really, really good. Um, and then the other one's like, man, well, it's, it, it, you know, it's easier to deal with a guy like that than a guy that has four pitches or whatever. And so we got to figure out a way if we're the Packers to teach Rashawn Gary, how to throw a curveball and how to throw a slider and how to throw a changeup. And once he does, his fastball is going to play up all the more. And that's when Rashawn Gary becomes one of the top 10 players in this class. If he doesn't get that, though, and we didn't see any indication that he was going to get that in Michigan, but if he does, and of course it's in play because he, ha he has the athleticism, he has world-class athleticism. If it does happen, absolutely, the, you know, the, the juice will be worth the squeeze there. Um, but yeah, th those are my questions about it. So all, all really great stuff uh, on Rayshon Gary. And I think all of these are going to be question marks that, uh, like I said, that Green Bay is going to have to answer. And hopefully he can certainly live up to the billing of what Brian Gutekunst and friends can kind of uh, envision him as that 12th overall pick. Uh, but I know you said you were really high on Elton Jenkins and Jay Sternberger and also had some questions on Darnell Savage. Uh, what were your overall grades on those three and, and how do you see them fitting in with the Packers? Yeah, as, as, as far, let's, we'll start with Savage. I like Savage as a player a lot. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, insane speed, um, really, really good athleticism, you know, 86 percentile athleticism, and he's very, very aggressive. So you, you, you have this kid who's a sort of kamikaze with four, three, six speed. He's got a 39 and a half inch vertical. 
um, I, I understood why he was a late riser in the process. And also another thing to keep in mind with him, while Rashawn Gary, while his uh, situation I thought was pretty ideal, you know, being with a really good defensive staff and being around a lot of these these other NFL guys, stuff like that. Darnell Savage was sort of the opposite. Maryland, their program devolved into a joke these last couple of years. They they obviously had the scandal with DJ Durkin and and the very unfortunate incident with that and everything like that. And, you know, the 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 team was just sort of this sinking ship, you know, where they, they were just sort of trying to patch things together with bubblegum. Darnell Savage is making plays out there all the time, you know, and so for, for him to transcend those circumstances and, and to clean up um, for, for some of the mistakes of some of his other teammates, stuff like that, I, I thought it was great. I, I ended up ranking him as the the third safety in, in, in the class. Um, you know, what, what I like about him, again, the athleticism, um, he's very good in the slot. So it's not like, it's not like Jonathan Abram where you put him in the slot and he can get torched. You know, I mean, Savage is a legit cover guy. So legit. In fact, that, you know, there was a lot of talk in the, in the pre-draft process is a team going to try to convert him, um, to cornerback, you know, whether, you know, pr- probably in the slot, but, you know, it's probably going to end up being a, a bit of a hybrid type situation there. Cause he's also good in the box. You know, he, he's a kid who will get his nose dirty and, you know, run up there and, you know, lay someone out or, you know, get into the flat and smoke a receiver or whatever on a screen, whatnot. So I, I like all that stuff. And also he provides value on special teams. So as far as the prospect himself, I, I, I like him a lot. My only slight quibble there is just you take him at 21 again, this safety class was very, very deep. There was eight guys, if you include Abram, that you could have talked yourself into as the first safety in the class. And so, you know, that meant, you know, heading into the draft that some of those guys were going to filter down the board. You just knew that. So, you know, same thing with, with receiver because it was a very deep class. And so to be the aggressor there and to sort of like start out, be like, okay, we're going to take the first safety. Like we're going to jump up. We're going to use this premium pick on a safety. I, I like the gumption. I, I like the prospect. But, you know, would, would I rather have Darnell Savage at, you know, the, the 21st overall pick or a guy like, you know, Hooker or, uh, you know, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson or, you know, Deontay Thompson uh, later on, you know, three, three rounds later? I, I, I think I would prefer the, the latter, um, you know, just in using the, the 21st pick maybe on, on, on a player of a, of a different position or whatever, fill something else. But, it, again, as far as the prospect himself – like him a lot. And if the Packers, you know, if, if that was their number one, and of course he was their number one safety, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I think that that kid could be a player and I think he's a great fit, you know, for, for what Green Bay wants to do. You know, you're talking about like, you know, the, the aggression there and stuff. And, and you, you have a guy now in the back end, a guy that can play, you know, you can play center field, free safety. You can bring him up, you know, play him in the slot. You can, you can bring him up and put him in the box. Like he can do these, the, all these different things. That's where the modern NFL is going. You know, athletic guys that can do a whole bunch of different things in space. So, you know, f- for all those reasons, I, I I do like him a lot. I, I realize that I'm nitpicking a little bit on that one, but that you know, that's my thoughts on that one. As far as day two, like I said, I, I thought Green Bay absolutely destroyed day two. Elton Jenkins, great prospect. He and Elton Jenkins is a guy too where. Um, you know, some of these guys are true boomer bust type prospects where if, if they can't, their number one thing, if, if they fail at that, they're done. You know, it's, it's hard to envision them as, as something else, you know, because they, they don't really have anything else to fall back on. Elton Jenkins, though, his absolute floor, like, let's just say that Elton Jenkins is an abject bust and we all missed on him. His absolute floor would be as a swing backup offensive lineman that can legitimately back up all five positions in a pinch, like be like a, a, a Nick Punto, you know, for 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 us northern baseball fans, you know, something like that. A, a utility guy that can can play all over and and and, and plug holes and stuff like that. Um, but I don't think he's going to be that. I, I I think he is absolutely going to be a long term starter. Um, he's a he's a really big kid, sticky hands plus power. Um, Obviously, very versatile. We, we we talked about that. Started at four different uh, positions at Mississippi State. Uh, Twenty six at center, five at left tackle, two at left guard, and one at right tackle. Only allowed one sack over the last two seasons. Only allowed five quarterback pressures last year. So we know he's very good in pass protection. He's even better as a run blocker um, because of those sticky hands. He, he's one of those guys. He gets his hands on you, and he just he doesn't really let go. Very consistent. Um, so yeah, I, I like him a lot. And he also had some, some really good games against strong competition. One, the one exception was the Alabama game last year was, was kind of unfortunate, but, um, you know, outside of that, he had, he had a lot of good games, has long arms, you know, and stuff like that. 
Um, he might not be one of the guys that's like a perennial pro bowler. He, he could be. He, he definitely might be. Um, but, you know, if, if nothing else, I think, you, you know, you got a solid starter here. I, I think that's the, um, you know, what what you've got, that the absolute bottom of the floor is a valuable guy off the bench. And then the upside is, is a guy that's going to go to, you know, multiple Pro Bowls. So I, I like that pick a lot, especially because, you know, with, with the offensive line class, guys started to get whipped up there off the board. You know, we, we didn't see one in the top 10. Um, and then, you know, as we started to get into the 20s, that's when the, the pace started to pick up a bit. Um, and then, you know, in the top, you know, in the second round there and stuff like that. And so to get Jenkins before all the guys got snapped up uh, was great because you, you didn't want to sort of end, you know, on the outside of that, you know, when the music stopped or whatever. And then Sternberger is my favorite pick of, of the Green Bay draft. It, uh, you know, I, I hate I hate to admit this on 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 the pod. Andy knows this already, but you know, like I said, I'm coming to you guys from Minneapolis. I I'm from Brainerd, Minnesota. I I'm I'm a Vikings fan. Is you know is, is what I am. I cover college football. I, then I cover the NFL draft, but I, I don't cover the NFL. So I'm I, I think I'm allowed to to be to you know to be a fan or whatever. Uh, when the the Vikings took one of my least favorite uh, uh, prospects, certainly a tight end in in the draft in the second round. You know, well above Sternberger in Irv Smith, who I don't think Irv Smith is an inline tight end. I I think that he is a tweener. I, I think he's an H back, you know, he's like six two two forty two with his, his athleticism is decidedly below average. Um, and he's a guy who was really helped out by his supporting cast last year. Sternberger is not, he's, he's sort of, you know, the opposite. He's, he's a kid who sort of came from nothing. You know, when, when he was in high school as a sophomore in high school, he was a five foot nine dual threat quarterback who wore black rim glasses <laughs> and you know, that, that, that he gets injured and he's, he, he sits out for a year, hits a growth spurt. They move him to tight end and sort of the rest was history. He ends up getting a scholarship offer to Kansas. My, my other alma mater besides Iowa. And, uh, that was really tough because Kansas threw him the ball once over two years. So Sternberger's like, you know, screw you guys. And he goes down to the Juco level, quickly establishes himself as the number one Juco tight end in the nation. And when Jimbo Fisher left Florida State, you know, he, he, he goes to A&M or whatever. Jay Sternberger was near the top of his recruiting hit list. I mean, that was, we need Jay Sternberger. I want to build an offense around this, this, this Juco kid who somehow, you know, only managed to get one, you know, catch over two years at Kansas. So they bring him in and Jay Sternberger absolutely dominated in the SEC from the jump, which should really impress people. And I, I, I think it should have impressed the NFL way more than it ended up doing because we know that the tight end is one of the most difficult positions in football to develop. And for Sternberger to just sort of walk out of, you know, Oklahoma A&T or, you know, whatever Juco he was at into the SEC immediately become the, the, you know, the number one receiver on his team, which Irv Smith was not. Irv Smith was like the fourth or the fifth receiver on, on Alabama. So even though his counting stats look really good, you got to understand two or through for 10 billion yards last year, you know, whereas on, on A&M or whatever, I mean, that, that, that was a run first type team with, you know, Travion Williams or whatever Mond, you know, a young, young quarterback or whatever. He leaned on Sternberger over this collection of wide receivers. This young collection of wide receivers is very good. If, if Kevin Sumlin's good at one thing, it's recruiting receivers. And so that's what he left Jimbo with. And yet Sternberger was the number one dude there from the jump. Um, I love the kid. Very, very clever. And he's also very, very fluid. So he's a kid who moves far better on the field. And for Packer fans that haven't watched his clips, check out that kid's clips. You can't just go off, off of his athletic profile. He's one of those guys where I toss the athletic profile out because I've seen him rip up all these SEC linebackers, all these SEC safeties that are supposedly more athletic than he is. So he moves faster and quicker on the field than he tests. He creates separation. Um, one of his other skills that I really, really like too, he's one of those guys, and there's not a ton of these guys that do this in college football, certainly tight ends. He he can be moving absolutely full bore, full sprint, and pluck a ball out of the air outside of his frame on the move and continue trucking just as fast as he was before. You you don't see that very much where they just pluck it. They're still moving 100%, you know, full bore or whatever, and just sort of seamlessly turn up field without losing any momentum. He does that. He wins in contested situations, has a huge catch radius, uh, doesn't waste motion, turn up field, like I just said. Um, very dangerous after the catch. If, if you guys look at his, like, highlight clips and stuff like that, you will see numerous times where Jay Sternberger makes a catch, breaks a tackle, makes somebody miss, outruns somebody else. Then, you know, there's like four guys on him at the end of the thing. You know, they're 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 all jumping on him. It's, you know, back to the Game of Thrones as everyone's on jumping on the giant trying to get him onto the ground or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it, it, anyway, I 
and, and he was also a guy that had a ton of first down catches last year. It led all SEC tight ends in that. 77% of his of his receptions went for, for first down, 37% of them. He's a money receiver. Um, and and I really, really high on him. You know, he's he's a kid that I could see making Pro Bowls earlier in his career. Um, and especially with the landing spot. What what a tremendous pick by Green Bay. Yeah, I think so too. And like you said, the, the biggest thing that stood out to me was just his natural hands and the ability to, to turn up field and, and like you said, do so without stopping. That was something I know I was super excited about. And like I said, or like you said, I should say, uh, certainly somebody that's going to be a, a chain mover for Green Bay, those third and five, third and six, you know, he can turn around to find the ball quickly, snatch it out of the air. And like you said, keep moving. So I, I certainly think some weapons there and, and totally agree with you on your Elton Jenkins uh, evaluation as well. Darnell Savage going to be one of those players that I uh, I think is going to really fit in with this defense. Like you said, he can do a variety of different, different things. Uh, his versatility is going to be huge. And, you know, while I, I agree with the uh, assessment completely that, you know, would you rather take, you know, Darnell Savage by moving up to 21 and a random fourth rounder, or would you rather stay at, you know, 30, take who's ever there and, uh, you know, pick up Chauncey Gardner Johnson on day three. I probably like the latter a little bit more, but I do love the fact a little bit that they attacked the board, got the safety that they liked the most and, uh, and didn't mess around because it's been a huge issue for Green Bay, that safety position. And they certainly didn't want to miss or, or kind of wait around. So they attacked it. And I do love that aggressiveness. Thor, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can we find your work and where can we follow you on social media? Yeah, it, thanks so much. Sorry, everyone, for being, you know, for, for talking too much because we didn't even get to the, these other guys. You know, Kiki, I liked a lot. Dexter Williams is a guy who, you know, who could uh, potentially be a fantasy contributor early on. I mean, obviously to the, the Packers as well. He's He's got a lot of skill as well. And the other thing I wanted to say just out the door, um, you know, I, I was doing my UDFA rankings and most of the Packers UDFA crop, I I, I wasn't terribly high, and I, I I don't know how how far they're going to make it. But one kid that I absolutely loved was Yash Nijman, the the tackle from Virginia Tech. I thought that he was a middle round prospect. He's a six seven three twenty four tackle who moves extremely well. Had upper eightieth percentile athleticism and spark. So I I thought that he should have gone in the fourth or fifth round. So I I absolutely love that that flyer by the Packers. Um, thanks again for having me, Andy. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Thor KU, um, and then go to Roto World, the NFL draft section. We have all the stuff out there right now. Yesterday, I put out my absolutely ludicrous UDFA class grades because I'm an an extremely sick man. Um, You can also check out my snap grades. You can check out my top 500 big board. And Packers fans, I I got comps on 500 players. I got, I got comps. I got, I got spark scores. I got Raz on 500 guys, my entire big board, every single guy, five punters, five kickers deep. I have, I have comps for him. So if you guys want to check out some of these, these guys, like I comp Ty Summers to Nick DeLuca, who I, I know there's a lot of Packer fans who are also NDSU fans might remember that. And funny enough, I, I comp Dexter Williams to, Jam- to Jamal Williams. Um, so you know, you guys can go and check that out. And and Jay Sternberger, my boy, I, I comped him to Greg Olson. Uh, my my buddy Evan Silva at Roto World comped him to Dallas Clark. So uh, Packer fans, get excited about Mr. Jay Sternberger. And thank you guys so much for for having a Vikings fan on and, and, and tolerating me. Appreciate it. We'd love to have you on anytime. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, make sure to go find his work at rotoworld.com and follow him on Twitter at ThorKU. Make sure, as always, to listen tomorrow as Jake and Ross continue with a brand new episode for you. Make sure to follow the podcast at Packaday Podcast. And if you can please rate, like, or subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcast, we greatly appreciate that as well. That does it for us today. Thanks for listening. And as always, go Pack Go. One kick away from the NFC Championship game from the 41. Left pass mark, 51 yard. Good goal attempt, snap, placement, kick to the upright. Green Bay Packers. <laughs>